Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Om Shanti, everyone. Welcome to the Brahma Kumari's Next Normal. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. And as we continue to navigate during these incredible times of transitioning, transformation, transcending, one has to really take a moment and pause and ask, what is it all about? What are we supposed to be learning here? Where are we supposed to go with all of the changes that have been thrusted upon us? So many times we feel like we're in control of our lives and then the universe or the destiny or just our karmas humble us and make us say, look, surrender to the flow, but just be the best person that you can possibly be. Our special guest that we have tonight is someone that I came across from The Secret. You know, where our friend Michael Beckwith and everybody was featured and they forgot me, that same documentary movie. (laughs) And John had some really good things to say. And I was so delighted that he was able to give us his valuable time to join us on The Next Normal. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about who our special guest is today. Dr. John DeMartini spent much of his childhood being told by his teachers and even his parents that he'd never really amount to much. But after being constrained to arm and leg braces until he was four years old and living out his teenage years on the streets, Dr. DeMartini chose to be liberated from all of that rather than limiting his life experiences. Today, Dr. DeMartini is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, and global educator, and is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior, leadership, and entrepreneurialism. He's the founder of the DeMartini Institute and has authored more than 40 books. Says a lot for a person who was told he wasn't going to be amount to nothing, huh? That's why you can't listen to people all the time. He has appeared in over 30 documentaries, including The Secret, and has been interviewed by thousands of newspapers and magazine publications, and appeared on radio and television talk shows across the globe. He's even been a regular contributor to the Oprah magazine, and it gives me such a delight to welcome the wonderful Dr. John DiMartini to The Next Normal. John, I want to get right in to talk with you and to just be with you. You have no idea how much a story like yours inspires me and gives me the conviction that my potential and capacity and ability to be a contributor to humanity rest in my hands. Welcome to The Next Normal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about what it was like the early years and what did you used to see in those early years when you kind of felt this vibration on you of people dismissing you and thinking you'll never be enough. Do you remember? Yeah, I had my arm and leg turned in as a child and I had to wear braces from about one and a half to about four. And walking around with arms and leg braces, people don't know what to do with you and they don't know how to respond to you and they criticize you and you know, kind of bullied a bit. When I got out of that at age four, I was so inspired to get out of that 
I wanted to prove to my dad that I could keep my arm and leg straight and I could run. I guess I've been on the run all my life. And then when I found out in first grade with the first grade teacher that I had inability to read and comprehend and make sense out of words, and my pronunciation was not ideal, I went to a speech pathologist starting at one half to try to use strings and buttons in my mouth to try to use my muscles properly. That was a challenge because it felt like I literally had to wear a dunce cap in first grade. So that was a bit deflating, but I tried to find a way of getting to be the center of attention and be the clown and also do well in running. And I took up baseball and I did well in baseball. So I counterbalanced the academic part with that. And I made it through elementary school only by asking smart kids questions, which has helped me today because I ask people questions. That's part of what I do. So I can see that that's been carried all this time. So yeah, there were challenges, but there were also navigating it through those challenges with new creative ideas to be able to figure out how to get by. But then when my parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, which is a small town outside the city, we were in a very low socioeconomic area and we didn't have a bunch of kids to ask questions to. And I ended up failing and then dropping out. And that's when I hit the streets about 13. And when you say you hit the streets, did you run away from home? And what were you doing on the streets? It's an interesting story. (laughs) I had a girlfriend that I wanted to meet. I was 13, but I didn't want to tell him I was going to meet this girlfriend. And he said, well, tonight you stay home. And I said, well, no, I've got a date. He said, no, you stay home. And I didn't want to mess up the date because I was enamored with this girl. So he said, well, if you go out today, you don't come back. And I went, okay. So I packed up my bag and I took a risk. I went on my own and my dad said, okay, you're obviously a grown up man. You're ready to go on your own. And so I did that. And it wasn't that he kicked me out, really. He just was trying to be a disciplinarian. And I just had a motive that was stronger than that discipline at the time. And so I took to the streets. And I lived at friends' houses first, and then in a in the back of a bowling alley, and then a little diner, and in a park, in a car, and did things. And then at 14, I hitchhiked out to California, and then and down into Mexico. And at 15, I went off to Hawaii to ride big waves and surfing, because surfing was the thing I wanted to do. Wow. You know, it always fascinates me, John, how a boy can do that, and a girl would be, like, terrorized to be in that position. And do you recall what you were feeling and processing during 13 to 14 before you went to Hawaii? Well, that was the 60s. <laughs> so there was a little bit of different era, which you may recall. But uh, so there's the kind of like the free love days and the hippie days and adventurous days and music and Vietnam and all that. So there was adventure. There was fear. I remember going into diners and getting salting crackers and ketchup for dinner. I also remember panhandling on the streets and also getting kicked out of places. And I mean, I, I had lots of different things going on. I wasn't too rambunctious, but I was determined to try to figure it out on my own. What does a 13 or a 14 year old do? They try to survive. I mean, that's what you do. Yeah, but I also had amazing adventures. I met uh, Ted Nugent in Austin, Texas and hung out with Ted Nugent. And then I met Howard Hughes when I was 14. I met Timothy Leary at 14. I hung out with the top surfers at 15. So I had amazing adventures. I lived behind the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach, California, and I met uh, Buddy Miles and B.B. King, and they came out and ate pretzels and chatted with me outside. And So I had adventures, and I had challenging moments. I had been shot at. I'd been almost stabbed. I also had amazing meetings with amazing people. So I can say that there's nothing I look back on that I'm not grateful for. I don't regret any of it. I bet you are. Well, you know, in those days, we don't have the language to even understand what we're going through. But here you are, fast forward many decades. And when you look back in those times, 
Do you recognize what you were going through was setting you up for where you are today? Like you could see, I'll give you an example. I could remember from I was six, seven, that my deepest wish was to become a psychologist and guide people to God because I think if they get closer to God, they would be mentally happier. And the reason why I had that drive was because of a relative that suffered with very, very intense depression. And so I didn't know that decades later, I would be living the life that I'm living that invites individuals to take that pathway to connect to source, to see if your mind could be happier. But back then at 6, 7, I would have never imagined it. Here I am almost 60 and I go, wow, it was as if it was preordained. Do you remember now when you go back and you do a life review that you were really being prepared to live the life that you're living now? Well, from age 4 to 13, baseball was my focus. Because when I got out of those braces, I just wanted to run. And I met John Bateman, who was a catcher for the Houston Colts. And he signed my baseball. And I just go, I want to be a baseball player. So I really worked at being a baseball player until 13. Then um, when my parents lived in the country out there, baseball was a mess. I mean, if I struck somebody out in baseball, a gang would attack the next day. And you'd be knifed or chained. And I thought, this is not working for me. So I picked up a sport I could do that didn't rely on a team and people that wouldn't show up and things. And surfing was my second sport. So from 13 to 18, my life was surfing. I mean, I did whatever it took to go ride waves. And I rode 40-foot waves. I went to Hawaii. and I was on the North Shore. I got to be in surf magazine, movies, book. I did well in surfing. But then I nearly died at 17, almost 18. And that led me to a little health food store, which led me to a talk by a gentleman named Paul Seabrag. This gentleman inspired me to believe that I could do more with my life. That night was the first time in my life I thought, wow, maybe I could learn to read and become intelligent someday. I had a dream about doing it, but I never thought it was going to happen. I guess I subordinated everybody else's opinion instead of looked within and realized I had higher potential. So that was the night I decided that I wanted to conquer this thing, reading and learning and speaking to overcome those things. And I set out on a mission to do that. And with his help, I gained enough momentum. Then I almost gave up on it at 18, just months later, when I tried to go and take a college class. I took a GED, high school equivalency. I passed that with help. But when I tried to go to college, I failed. I got a 27 average. Look at you today. And my mom saw me. She said, what happened? I said, I failed the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate. Never mount a thing. Never go very far in life. And she put her hand on my shoulder. She said, son, whether you become a great teacher and philosopher and travel the world like your dream, whether you ride giant waves in Hawaii and go back to Hawaii, or whether you return to the streets, I just want to let you know your dad and I are going to love you no matter what. When she said that, my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I saw a vision of me standing in front of a million people speaking. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading and learning and studying. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give what's inside here to the world. And I got up and I hugged her and I started memorizing a dictionary until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And I never stopped reading once I learned to read. John, I could go on and on about your past, but I want to get to your present. But I have to tell you this, there's nothing more powerful than a person that you value or maybe have always wanted for them to value you, to tell you, you can be the best and the most. I mean, that's like fuel for the soul to keep you going, especially when life must have taken such twists and turns from 13 to 18 that those four years or five years must have been growing years in ways that are unimaginable to the average thinker of today's time. 
Well, let's now move to where you are at present. You are the author of The Values Factor, and you say everything comes down to values, and it is the key to empowering our lives. How do we go about identifying our true values, and how can we live from our highest values? Because, you know, sometimes, let's say I value honesty, but then I find myself in a particular scenario where I end up putting that further down on the totem pole because now I have to value respect more because the situation requires me to give respect to the person, but my honesty goes down the drain. So sometimes the value game can be such a juggling act. I mean, is there a place that you can come from within yourself where your core innate spiritual values will consistently stay in your decision-making factor? I started studying values about 43 and a half years ago. And I noticed that many people were confusing social idealisms with values. And if you asked them what they valued, they would say truth and honesty and peace and integrity and all this. But I wasn't seeing what their life was demonstrating. And I thought what their life demonstrates is more important than what they say. Because your perceptions, decisions, and actions are a reflection of what you value. So I thought, let's find out a way of discerning what is really valuable to them, not what they say, not what they think it's going to be. I put together 13 value determinants to help me help people find those values because the hierarchy of your values dictates kind of your destiny. And it also dictates how you perceive, decide, and act in life, your character. So I look at how people fill their space. Even a baby, if you put something in its little crib and it doesn't want it there, it will kick and push it out and do whatever it is. And if it's there, it'll put it in its mouth and play with it and look at it. If it's valuable, so it'll keep it closed. If it's not, it'll push it away. So what we keep in our personal and intimate space reflects what we value. The second thing is time. We make time, find time, spend time on things that are valuable. We don't want to spend time. We avoid the time on things that aren't. And so if we look at what our patterns of time use are and our patterns of spatial filling is, it gives some indication of what we value. Then I look at what energizes. And we're doing something that's really valuable to us. Our energy goes up. We're doing something that's low value. It goes down. So I look at what energizes us most, consistent. Then I look at what we spend our money on. When with something valuable, we'll make money, find money, spend money on things that are valuable. But we don't want to spend money on things that aren't. So I look for the reiterated pattern in those first four, space, time, energy, and money. Then I look at what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm inside yourself about how you would love your life to be that is showing evidence of coming true. If there's no evidence, it's fantasy. But if there's evidence and you're making it come true and you're taking the appropriate actions and getting a result, then that is an indicator. I look at where you're most organized because things that are really valuable to you, you bring order to. I look at where you're spontaneously, intrinsically disciplined because I know that when it's really important to you, you automatically do it intrinsically. You don't have to be motivated. Motivation is a symptom, never a solution. Then I look at what you want to converse with other people about and bring conversation to most frequently. Then I look at what it is that brings tears of inspiration to you and common denominators of people that inspire you. Then I look at what it is that you have as a goal that's persistent and consistent long-term that you show evidence of achieving and have metrics on. And then I look at what do you spontaneously want to learn about, read about, study about, watch on YouTube. What do you want to inculcate into your consciousness? And I look at the common reiterated theme in those 13. And if you look honestly and, and intrinsically what you feel called inside to pursue, there's a pattern. And the pattern, when you actually identify the answers to these questions, I ask for three answers for each one. And the ones that show up most frequently down to least frequency give me some indication of a hierarchy of values. Now, if you start to set goals that are aligned with the very highest value, you're disciplined, you're reliable, you're focused, 
you tend to walk your talk. You don't need to be reminded or motivated. You just live it. And that's where congruency and integrity, and now you're being honest with what's really important to you. And when you're dealing with social situations, you're having to do what you said, juggle. But when you're honest with yourself about what's really important to you, there's a power there and a magnetism there and an exemplification of what's possible for human beings that magnetize opportunities that synchronously, coincidentally allow them to fulfill their innermost dominant thought in a strategic, incrementally momentum-building way. So finding out what they value most is the first thing, and then start prioritizing their life. Because if they fill their day with high-priority actions, their self-worth goes up. If they fill it with low-priority distractions, it goes down. So giving themselves permission to be authentic to what's integral to what they value most, where they spontaneously want to contribute philanthropically to the world and be compensated in that, that gives people a self-actualized path. Very beautiful. Let's look at the value of honesty. It's something I talk a lot about. I think it's because I want it for myself so deeply at a spiritual level. I can honestly say at a particular high percentage, I'm very honest with the way that I think, the thoughts that are coming in my consciousness, where they're going, where the motivations are of these thoughts. Some of them I will approve of, some of them I will not approve of, right? And my interactions with people, I'm focused on keeping those as honest as I possibly can. But tell us a little bit about what is the behavior, the energy, the personality that you have observed in a very honest person, spiritually and physically honest? Well, we have what is called a subjective bias, a confirmation bias and a disconfirmation bias on our reality. And we meet people, sometimes we'll walk in a mall and we'll see somebody that we think is more intelligent than us more um, business savvy than us, more stable in our relationship, more socially influential, more physically fit or attractive, or maybe more spiritually aware or something. And we sometimes exaggerate them. We admire them and look up to them and kind of minimize ourselves. And when we minimize ourselves, we're kind of deflating ourselves, which is not really being integral or honest with ourselves. And we're exaggerating them and not really being honest with them. It's a subjective biased opinion that we think is an honest opinion at the moment. We can also reverse that and look down on somebody and think that we're more intelligent and more business savvy. And if we put them on the pedestal or put them in the pit, we minimize ourselves or put ourselves on a pedestal to compensate. And whenever we exaggerate or minimize ourselves to others and are too proud or too humble to admit what we see in them is inside us, we think we're being honest with our opinion but we're actually subjectively biased in our interpretation of our reality. And therefore we think we're being integral and honest when we're actually not. So what we think is honest sometimes is subjective opinions. And what's truly honest is an authentic expression of an inspired state that is a reward for being truly integral and objective and being willing to be mindful to see both sides of others and both sides of ourselves. I always say at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. At the level of the existence of the senses, things appear to be missing in us. And those things are things we're too proud or too humble to admit we have that we see in other people. And we realize when we see all that inside ourselves, then we have true integrity, true honesty, not an opinion honesty that we've labeled it subjectively with our bias that's a socially acceptable form tell you, John, that it's one of the most beautiful processes to go through. It's when you're able to really look within yourself and really be open with what's going on. And 
I like that part about the subjective biases in which, you know, you're either too high or too low. All of this internal work that we do will give us an opportunity to check where we're coming from. And I have to say, one of the gifts of the pandemic and being isolated for all the time that we were isolated is really to see things in myself that I always knew was there, but the things that I needed to toss, things that I just needed to transform, and things that I needed to keep. And now perception is changing everywhere. People are seeing things with a different inner sight. We're just changing whether we want to or not. So perception is a big thing. People make choices based on their perception. But how do we go about changing perception when a lot of the ways that we've seen the world has been so materially driven? I mean, the reason why so many lives were lost in the United States of America is that the decisions were mostly made based on economy, not on the well-being of the people's lives, right? So how do we go about transforming perception when maybe we've been thinking money is the most important thing, forget people. And now we're moving towards what we call in my spiritual community of the Brahma Kumaris, golden aged existence, which means a civilization of people who just have self-esteem and self-worth, right? So no one's going to take advantage of anyone. So how does that transformation of perception change? Because the world is changing, right, John? And we are all changing. And it's starting with the way that we're seeing ourselves and the world. What are your thoughts? Oh, boy. We'll need a couple of months on that one. But I'll start with an exercise that I did 36 years ago. I decided to do a little research project on myself. And because I noticed that many times the things I was saying to others, as Chomsky said, language isn't just for others. Language is to say things to others so you can hear it yourself. And I started to look very carefully at my own reflection. And I went to the Oxford Dictionary, which is the largest dictionary I could find, and I underlined or circled every human behavioral trait I could find, things that I looked up to or down on, didn't matter, just any trait I could find. Then I, out to the side, I wrote down, who do I know in my own experience that reflects or expresses that trait to the fullest or to the highest level, positive or negative traits, depending on how you want to look at it. And then I went in there and looked in my life, where and when have I displayed those behaviors to the same degree as the most extreme individual that I could see? And I didn't stop. I dug really deep. I found 4,628 individual behavioral traits in there that I neurotically went through and identified inside myself, every one of them. I found out that the only thing that we get our buttons pushed by when people speak to us is the things that we're too proud or too humble to admit that we have in ourselves. And that's what causes us reactions. If we're admiring somebody, we're too humble to admit it. If we're despising somebody, we're too proud to admit it. So I went in there and owned them all. And any trait that I skewed my subjective bias into the positive or negative side, I looked for the downsides on the things that I had looked up on. And I looked at the upsides on the one that I got down on. Because I realized that sometimes human beings project and assume their bias onto the universe instead of honor the universe in its wholeness. And so I basically looked deeply at those and found out that all of those traits have stood the test of time and were on the planet for ultimate purpose, but I was too narrow-minded to see it all. When I opened up my mind and saw that I had all of them, I realized all of them serve. I don't need to get rid of any half of myself to love myself. I can love myself for all. And I created a little affirmation, no matter what I've done or not done, I'm worthy of love. And that allowed me to be a lot more open and receptive to every human being. 
Then I realized in the study of values that the complete spectrum of values across the world, as Montaigne showed, was vast, and there was a need for every value. There were some people that were very intellectually oriented, and there were some people very business-oriented, and some that were very financial-oriented, and some social leaders, and some family-oriented. And I found that everybody had a place in the world and was needed. And I had a tendency to want to project my values onto the world and assume that and filter my reality through my values, kind of label things good or bad according to those values instead of open up and imagine that I'm looking through everybody's filter, everybody's perspective. And then I realized that there was a higher order to why everybody plays a role. And that allowed me to love people without projecting as easily. There's people out there that are dedicated to economic, others dedicated to their humanitarian family orientation, and they make decisions according to those values. So my job wasn't to make any of them right or wrong. My job was to find out how they communicated and try to express a way where everyone can get something out of it. How do we make sure we save lives in a way that's also economically sensible? How do we go and help people in their overall health at the same time, making sure that they're having time with their family? and making sure they're doing something that's a social cause so they feel that they've contributed. How can they actually get present and see the hidden order in the chaos that they're having so they can be present spiritually no matter what happens? I started asking questions so I could see an overarching hidden order in the apparent chaos that I normally judge. I think that the human being has something that the animals don't have. It has the capacity with its soul to extract meaning out of all existence. We can find the essence of love in all of them. Let me jump in here. What were some of the questions that you asked yourself? Because I think that's really important for our audience to hear. Well, I first asked the question, whenever I had a subjective bias on somebody and I was either impulsively attracted or instinctually repulsive to them, I realized that, why am I doing that? What is it about my values that I'm now projecting onto them? Because if I went to somebody and I said, you're always nice, you're never mean, you're always kind, you're never cruel, they would have an intuitive kind of BS meter that would go off and said, no. And I say, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind. Nope. Sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, like I had. They go, yep. So they had this kind of intuitive psychostat that knew that they had a little of everything. And they had a kind of an idealism of trying to get rid of half of themselves and only be one-sided, which seemed to be futile. And so I started asking people, what's the upsides to what I think are down and what are the downsides I think I'm up? So I'm not infatuated or resentful to people because whatever I'm infatuated or resentful to, they occupy space and time to mind and run me extrinsically. And so I started to think, okay, so if I'm infatuated, what specific trait, action or inaction do I perceive them displaying or demonstrating that I admire most? Okay, now go to a moment where and when I perceive myself displaying that and I'd own it. 100%, 100%, quantitatively, qualitatively. And I noticed that my judgment of them leveled and I didn't have them on a pedestal and I didn't minimize myself with much. And I have reflection and I felt resonant with them. And then I asked, so go to a moment where and when I perceive them displaying this and how is it a downside? I'm just enamored with the idea of the upside, but what are the downsides? And I realized, oh, their kind niceness was actually robbing people of accountability. They were doing things for people without giving them the responsibility to find out how to achieve things on their own. And I started looking both sides. And I then started to think, you know what? My first interpretation that I think is an honest interpretation was a subjective bias. Do I have the courage to be myself and look deeper so I don't have my skewed view, but I actually go inside and find myself in all of that? And I same thing on the resentment. I'd ask these questions. And then I find the upsides to them. And the second I did, I had my heart open. 
Because the second I brought them into balance and I had mindfulness instead of mind happiness, I felt gratitude and love for them for revealing to me the parts that I've been too proud or too humble to admit that I have. And then I saw them as a teacher to teach me how to transcend my own judgment so I could love the individual. And I felt then a hidden order, a connection with the universe, a panpsychic connection, a transcendent spiritual awareness that made me in awe with tears in my eyes. And I always saw that tears in my eyes were confirmations that I'm now seeing things really integrally. Yeah, I get that very much. You know, you've been talking so many powerful and beautiful things, and a lot of it is about the soul. And as you even mentioned about the whole conversation of having an intimate connection, I look at that as soul consciousness, that when I can talk to you, the soul, and come from my own place of the soul, there's a very deep intimate bond between me and another. Versus if I look at them from the color of their skin, or their gender, their religion, or the way that they're dressed, it just reduces so much of what the relationship could actually be worth in the long run. But nowadays, there is an industry that's increasing, which has a lot of grief, a sense of sorrow, of loss, fear, anxiety. It's not that that industry hasn't been around. It has been around for a while. But we're also finding that as technology gives us the opportunity to tap into those emotions altogether, millions of people can look at a viral video and get the same emotion, whether it's grief or loss. It's a very debilitating feeling, and yet it has played a very big role in our development in its own way. Can you share with us, John, any steps that you've used to overcome a sense of grief or loss? And I have to tell you another dimension of this. Let's say that life is okay. There really isn't any grief or loss. But when you really go deeper inside of the soul, you feel a sense of loss or grief, which is actually connecting to the soul in previous lives. It has nothing to do with this one. Is there anything that you might be aware of that could be a technique that can help someone who's listening today to be able to take that step away from being too comfortable with the energy of loss or grief or sorrow? Well, I have been studying grief since really 1979 and developed a methodology on grief that's been researched. We've used in Christchurch earthquake, the tsunami in Japan, the earthquake in Japan. And I found out something about grief. I first was down in El Salvador surfing in 1979, the summer. And I ran into a 300 group procession of people celebrating and cheering and having a great time and dressed in color and white and everything else. And I asked them, Kid Paso, what's happening here? And they said, the mayor has passed away and we're celebrating the liberty of his spirit and we're feasting and celebrating his freedom. And I went, wow, that's interesting. That's different than what I've seen in Greece where they wear black and they mourn and there's grieving. And that started a journey in my mind Why is it that one culture has a celebration, the other one has a gloom and doom? So I started asking what causes these states. And I found out that there's two primary sources of grief. And that grief is the perception of loss of that which you seek or the perception of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. And so our amygdala has a seeking for prey and has a avoidance of predator. So anytime we get infatuated and we get attracted to something, we fear it's loss. Anytime we get repelled from something, we fear it's gain. Those two phobias that drive all fears. 
So if we fear that we're going to have bills, that's a phobia. We grieve bills. Or if we lose money, that can be a fear for people. Or we have people that we really want to be with and they disappear, there's grief. Or people we don't want to be around because we're judging them, grief. So our judgments and our subjective biases, and the more polarized and more subjectively distorted they are, the more they accentuate these states. We recently had a death in an Iranian general, Soleimani, I believe. I'd been to Iran and spoken there, and five million people went out and grieved the loss of this general because they had him as a hero. But in some places in America, they had him as a terrorist, and nobody grieved the loss of him because they saw him as a predator, not a prey. So as long as we have these polarized views, we're now creating those sensational experiences because of our perception. So if I can neutralize my perception and be unconditional about my perception of some individual or some experience, and I'm not attached to it one way or the other, I can get to an unconditional love of the soul and feel the presence of that which I thought was missing and realize that it's the master lives in a world of transformation, not the illusions of gain and loss. So I developed a methodology to ask questions, to make people aware, to neutralize their perception, to dissolve the grief. So it's not a biological essentialness, and it actually prolonged grief syndrome is actually causing all kinds of health problems, immune problems, digestive problems, cardiovascular problems, et cetera. So there's now a way, a scientific way, a reproducible way to dissolve grief on any perception of loss of that which you seek or gain of that which you're trying to avoid. And it's simply asking questions and holding people accountable to balance out their perception and reach a state of unconditional love, not infatuation, where they're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides, or resentful, where they're conscious of the downsides and unconscious of the others. Because those opinions are just opinions. They're not truths about the people. Because when you actually get to know the truth about the person, the actual individual, you're going to love them. You know, in the Bhagavad Gita, the effort of Krishna teaching Arjuna is to assist Arjuna in finding a very neutral state of existence. He had his cousins on the other side of the war, and he was going to have to attack his own cousins, and he didn't want to do that. And so Krishna is saying, no, you have a duty. This is your caste. This is your duty. And to transcend the illusion of mortal structures and see something beyond that. And to be able to transcend limited motives, I find that there's something very deeply connected to your answer of your why. Like, why really are you doing this? Is it for the larger picture? Or is it just for me, the self? Is it selfless or is it self-full? I mean, what is it about? And my form of practicing to build the soul to get to that neutral state has been on a consistent reminder. I don't know what yours is, but throughout the day, every hour and the hour, I pause for something called traffic control. And I go in and I remind myself I'm an immortal, eternal, imperishable, pure being. And then I connect to the divine. And somehow it makes me feel like whatever I need to do just starts to get leveled out. What's been your method to help you to neutralize all that karma that's sitting in there and to get to that point where you could really come from this very neutral place? Well, I tend to think that everything is on the way. It's all dharmic. We just don't see it that way. And so we make our karma out of our perceptions, our causal perceptions. Because anytime we separate cause and effect and we blame or give credit externally, extrinsically, instead of realizing it's a reflection within, we separate the inseparables, divide the indivisibles and create a arrow of time which separates things over time and creates this causality, which is the karmic wheel, if you will, the samsara wheel. So we have the capacity to become so present 
and realize that nothing is ever gained or lost. It's transformed and have that immortal, eternal state. And so that statement is a great affirmation of a great principle that we sometimes get lost in our day-to-day causal world and miss out on. So a good reminder, a checkup from the neck up on an hourly basis is a great wise thing to do. I try to do it both ways. I do a top-down, bottom-up approach. I take perceptions when I get sensations in my body that's either attraction or repulsion, parasympathetic or sympathetic, I have an autonomic laterality instead of actually bringing myself to center. So I use those symptoms of my physiology and symptoms of all areas of my life, which are feedback mechanisms, to catalyze me, to remind me of that state. And then I also have questions to make me aware of the other side because the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. If you ask questions that allow you to see the side you're ignoring in your awareness and center yourself by having those balanced, you then return back to the state of unconditional love, the soul. And so a top-down and a bottom-up approach to me has been useful to my life. But that affirmation is very similar to what I have in my life. You know, I'll break it down to something really simple that you said. It's being able to really check what you're feeling to determine where you're going. I've noticed that I've become a lot more sensitive with my feelings. Like even if I'm speaking to somebody and I can feel a little bit of ego or anger or frustration, I go, wait, where are you going with this? What do you want? And it's been interesting to keep doing the self-checking with all my interactions. Even if I'm on the phone, like today I had to work on transferring our light from one house to another because we've just acquired a new retreat center. So we're leaving where we are now to another space. And, you know, they were like, these issues, I didn't remember my code to get in. And then I go, I have to process this and feel this through because if I get agitated, they're not going to even help me. And it was really nice to find somebody who knew what they were doing to help me bypass the fact that I could not remember what my password was. And I think that mentality of really checking that you're not coming from that resistance and that fear and that limit. And I'm just remembering now as I'm speaking to you, John, and every one of you out there, there was a time when walking with that vibration in me was natural. I mean, it was just natural to be tense, to be fear-based, to limit my life or to think, I can't do this. Now it's like, I don't know who I am. Show me that I could learn from all of this openness. Your life is now deemed a great success. And even though you might look at it in dollars and lectures and travels and experiences, we all know success boils down to are you happy with yourself? And I'm sure that you are. But looking at all of your successes now, why is giving back so important to you? Because you do that. Share with us a little bit about that. Well, I don't label myself a success. I say I'm a man on a mission. Because I always say, the second you think you're successful, you're probably on your way down. And the second you think you're a failure, you're probably on your way up. One's a depurposing, one's a repurposing adjustment and feedback system to the authentic self. So I don't really attach to those labels. But, but I know that looking and studying physiology, and I taught neurology and brain research for long years, I believe that we have a sensory cortex and a motor cortex for a reason. And the motor cortex is for service. And the sensory cortex is for reward. And if I try to get something for nothing narcissistically, unfulfillment. If I try to give something altruistically and sacrifice myself, eventually I get unfulfillment. When I try to find the reflection I see in them is a reflection of me, and I bring those into equanimity within myself and equity between them, I have the most sustainable fair exchange. And then I'm rewarded, rewarding other people. And so it's not because of some sort of discipline. 
it's also because I've just realized that's what works. <laughs> so you eventually bang your head against the wall until you finally realize that's what the universe is trying to give you, a sustainable, fair exchange with people. And if you exaggerate yourself and minimize them, it doesn't work. It's non-sustainable. And if you minimize yourself and exaggerate them, you also learn a lesson. So I'm not interested in exaggerating or minimizing myself or other people, ultimately. I'm just interested in doing what I feel is my mission. And my mission is to research and teach. I love learning and disseminating. And I delegate everything else. I research every day. I teach every day. I haven't driven a car in 30, 31 years. I haven't uh, cooked since I was 24. I don't do administrative work. I don't do anything that requires lower value activities for me. I only stick to the top three values that I research, write, and teach, period. And the rest of it, I delegate to the people who love doing that part. And I try my best to stick to my core thing that I do that is, I feel my destiny. And that's been extremely rewarding because I don't have all the distresses. Because I think distresses are feedback mechanisms to let you know that you haven't delegated some things and you haven't given yourself permission to be the most authentic centered person. And we're designed to be agitated when we're not being authentic to get us back to authenticity. So true. So anything kind of pending for you now that you'd like to share with our audience that you're up to? Any online programs that you're offering? I'm constantly doing presentations, I mean, every day. If they go on my website, drdmartini.com, and look to media, they can see hundreds and hundreds of those. Or they can just look on the events, because there's live events and live presentations constantly going on, and interviews and podcasts. Whatever allows me to disseminate information and gather information, I spend my day doing. So they can go on there, and they can find out what's going on. They can also do the value determination process on my website. That's free. It's private, complimentary. Take about 30 minutes of their time. Determine your values on drdmartin.com. That's my main mission, trying to help people live magnificent, inspired lives, present, doing what they feel called to do on the planet. So they have maximized their awareness of potential and realize that there's a hidden order, a divine order in life. And very few people seem to get it. But when they do, their lives are changed forever. I'm interested in helping people recognize the magnificence. I don't see a problems in the world. I see a magnificence in the world. I love helping people see that. Oh, John, I think it's a blessing. We need that more and more. Dr. John D. Martin. I love your name, but it almost sounds like an alcohol drink. <laughs> Many people remember me that way. But anyway, take that martini. I know. John, thank you so much for joining us on The Next Normal. And if you don't mind, I definitely would like us to continue with our conversation and expand it even more because... What you've offered us in this hour has been so rich, but it's also quite transformative. And I'm sure everybody who actually tunes into this will definitely take away something to make their lives better. So we thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. I'd love to do it anytime. All right, everyone. I am sure you have taken a lot from Dr. John Martini, and it's one of our special programs that you can just replay over and over again. You'll definitely find some tool to help you to move forward. As you all know, our deepest and purest feeling for your lives is that it becomes a better version, that you can live this life that just has divinity and grace and beauty and peace and power while you run your corporation, while you produce your movies, while you stay in your marriage, while you take care of the kids, while you sweep the floor, while you work in HR, IT, whatever it is, that somehow you can 